You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Well, hello, everyone, again. I would like to start today with something ironic about the way I came to believe that God would ultimately save all of us by grace alone. For many years, I didn't believe grace was God's way of saving everyone. I thought that grace completed the lion's share of salvation, but that there was some part of it which was finally up to us and that God couldn't or wouldn't be able to do that part for us and that all of this had something to do with true human freedom. So I went with a view that's sometimes called annihilationism, which is just basically the idea that if you resist love and grace and mercy and life long enough and with enough determination, you might actually be able to wiggle out of it forever. In 1996, I even did a Doctor of Ministry project in which I analyzed the three various ways Christians have come to see final judgment, those being eternal torment, annihilation, and restoration. And in that project, my conclusion was that annihilation, or destruction, was probably the final end of those who are bound and determined to practice terminal resistance to God. And so as part of my research back then into all of this, I looked into the various ways that the eternal torment position argued its case. Because in order to argue for eternal torment, you have to find a way to account for all those places in the Bible where it seems like some kind of final destruction is on the line in judgment. Because final destruction logically rules out eternal conscious torment. Because it's not eternal conscious torment if you're not aware it's happening to you. A good example of this problem is Matthew 10:28, where we find Jesus saying, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that part about having body and soul destroyed in hell certainly has the sound of permanence to it. So here we have a passage which seems to argue for a total destruction of body and soul in hell, which would work against both the eternal conscious torment position and the Christian universalism position. Ironically, both the eternal conscious torment position and the universal salvation position find themselves in agreement that we all continue to exist forever after death. It's just that one says we will exist forever in two separate places, heaven and hell, and the other says that while some might be separated off in a judgment or a hell of some kind for however long is necessary, we will finally all be joined together and God will ultimately be all in all. So both eternal conscious torment and universal salvation have to argue against the position that the ultimate end of the unworthy is annihilation or final destruction. Okay, so now back to that saying from Jesus we were considering from Matthew 10:28, where we find Jesus saying, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy, and that's the key word here, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. How do we find a way to think about that? Well, if you look up the Greek word behind that word destroy, you find the Greek noun, 
in Matthew 10:28, apolesi, which is related to a family of words that have to do with destruction. And I first became aware of all of this when I came across Larry Dixon's 1992 book, The Other Side of the Good News, in which he argues for the eternal conscious torment position and that God's destruction of the impenitent is actually a destruction in which they go on forever and ever in a never-ending state of conscious torment. And so here's how Dixon argued this in his book. Dixon wrote, The most common Hebrew term for destroy is abad, a word with a wide range of meaning. The people of Chemosh were destroyed, but this refers to their being sold into slavery, not their being annihilated. See Numbers 21-29. Saul's donkeys were abad in 1 Samuel 9-3 and verse 20, but abad obviously means lost, not annihilated in this text. In the New Testament, the Greek verb apolumai is translated destroy, and its noun form apoleia as destruction. Stott cites texts such as Matthew 2.13, 12.14, and 27.20, which refer to plots by Herod and later the Jews to kill Jesus as evidence of destruction. He then employs Matthew 10.28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, to prove the soul's total annihilation in hell. The same term destroy, or apolumi, however, is used in Luke 15 by Jesus of three illustrations of lostness in verses 1 through 7 to describe the lost but existing sheep, in verses 8 through 9 to describe the lost but existing coin, and in verse 24 to describe the prodigal but existing son. So, what Dixon argued is that all of the terms in the Bible which may seem to suggest annihilation actually point to the continued existence of the impenitent outside the presence of God in a state of terrible misery. And so I had Dixon's argument tucked away in the back of my mind about destruction not necessarily being about annihilation, and I remembered it in 2011 and 2012 when I really started reconsidering the possibility of a universal salvation of all humanity in Christ. And I thought to myself at the time something like, well, huh, if something or someone can be in a state of total destruction and still be existing, then that can work for the universal salvation argument as well. Because in Luke chapter 15, the lost sheep was apolumai in the Greek, which means destroyed, until it was found, and then it was undestroyed. And the lost coin was apolumai, or destroyed, until it was found. And the lost son was apolumai, or destroyed, until he came home and was restored to his father. And strikingly, at the end of the parable, the father states that his lost or destroyed son was not just found. He was also dead and now alive again. So apparently even the destruction of death is restorable. And then all of that really started to change my thinking, because that means that people don't cease to exist when they are destroyed or lost or even dead. No, because one can actually exist indefinitely in a state of destruction. And in that state of destruction, you are knee-deep in the consequences of sin. Ironically, 
my Christian universalism was actually encouraged by my studying the arguments of those who think hell is a state of torment that lasts forever and ever. I thought about actually naming this episode, How the Infernalists Helped Make Me a Universalist, but then I decided against it. So, the 15th chapter of Luke has turned out to be important for me in all of this because that Greek word apolumai alerted me to the fact that if people are in a state of destruction, they are still existing and still retaining their value. And that means the lost sheep can be found, the lost coin can be found, the lost son can come home, and it can even be said that he was dead and is now alive again. And so now when I read the Bible and I see something that seems to point towards a state of final destruction, I think to myself, well, apparently God can do an awful lot of destruction if necessary and still accomplish restoration. And that makes me think back to the example of the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19, where Sodom was destroyed completely by burning sulfur falling from heaven. But then how later on the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16.53 gives a prophecy where God says, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and Jerusalem's fortunes along with them. And then later on in the New Testament, in Jude 1.7, where we read that Sodom serves as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And when I put all of that together, I can see how it's possible for God to restore even that which has been completely destroyed in God's eternal judgment fire. And this makes me think that the eternal fire of God is the fire of God's holy presence, which finally burns away everything that is not holy. In some situations, this destruction might mean taking things pretty much, like in the case of Sodom, back to a clean slate. It turns out that God's destruction of Sodom was part of God's restorative plan for the eventual restoration of Sodom. And so now when I'm reading a judgment passage like Matthew 10:28, where we find Jesus saying, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I think to myself, well, hell here is actually Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, which is associated with destruction, with apolumai, or apolesi in the Greek. And that makes me think about how serious sin is and about how much destruction sin can bring about. But then I can remember that the total destruction and death that sin brings on is not the end of the story. The end of the story is restoration, because with God, all things are possible. Now we'll look at just one more of these hell passages and see how we can apply all of this. We'll look at the one from Mark 9, 43 through 48, where Jesus declares, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now talk about an intimidating passage. Here the consequence of sin is to be thrown into hell where the eating worms do not die 
and the consuming fire will not go out. The image of undying worms and everlasting fire is also found in the Old Testament in Isaiah 66:24, where the prophet describes a future time where people will be able to go and see the fate of the wicked and, quote, they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Unquote. So, what Jesus is doing when he's talking about hell and judgment and destruction is to bring together a series of familiar images and understandings in the Jewish world. And so, Jesus can speak of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom because that would have been something they all knew about. And he can reference consuming fires that won't go out and devouring worms that do not die, because that was also something they knew all about. And all of that speaks to me of destruction. And I can see why some people would think that destruction is the ultimate end of the wicked, because I used to think that too. But now I've come to see that I think there is a restoration on the other side of even the most devastating destruction, because even the destruction and death sin brings on can ultimately be reversed by a God who can restore all things. So that's how I look at these judgment passages now, which have a reference to destruction. And that's why I see that destruction is one way that, if necessary, God can accomplish restoration. So I hope all of this will help us to take the consequences of sin seriously. But I also hope that it will give us hope. Because any sinful attachment we have in this world can't hold on to us forever. Because the destruction that a God of perfect love brings on us can only ever be a part of God's plans for our ultimate restoration. And so it turns out that even God's destruction is part of a grace that saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.